Last spring, uh, Allison and I were talking with a young woman named Rachel who was in her freshman year at Auburn University. Well, now, technically, her name was not Rachel, and it wasn't Auburn University. They tell me that these sermons go on something called the World Wide Web, and so I just don't want to take any chances, you know, of disguising the name. Everything else is the truth, though. I'm kidding about the, uh, uh, the, the other stuff. That was supposed to be funny. It didn't work, so <laughs> let's close in prayer and <laughs> say amen. But th- this is a true story. We asked Rachel, how's life at school? And she said, I'm really sad. So we said, why? She said, I have to come home after this year. I had, I had a significant scholarship given to me, paid for most of my education, and I've got to come home. Why? I just didn't put my focus where it needed to be. My priorities were bad. I was too much into my boyfriend and we stayed up too late and I partied too much and I didn't give enough attention to my work and my, my grades aren't good enough and I have to go home. Is there anything you can do? No. I just blew it. There's no way. There's no probation, no anything. I have to go home. I'm so disappointed in myself. Now, it would seem obvious, would it not, that Rachel was and is a smart girl. You don't get a significant scholarship for being pretty. In most places you don't. Certainly that wasn't the case with her. She was a beautiful girl, but she's a smart girl. But going home, poor choices put an unexpected and early end to her college career. But Rachel's story is told over and over and over at universities across the land. Young men and women get their first taste of freedom, and they think they can manage fun and responsibility. Just like Rachel did this time last year, when she was a freshman moving into Auburn University. I can handle this. Couldn't handle it. She couldn't manage it. Poor priorities often carry painful consequences and have a dramatic effect on one's future. So this morning, I'm going to talk about how to establish proper priorities that will guarantee success in your life no matter what you decide to do. Not really. That's uh, not going to be. This is not a how-to kind of a thing at all. We are, though, going to talk about priorities in life. And since you're at church, it's not going to surprise you at all that we're talking about spiritual priorities. But it's not a Sunday morning kind of priority. It's the ultimate priority of life kind of thing that we're going to be looking at this morning. If there is a God, if there is a God, and I'm going to guess that at least 98% of you think, yes, you would agree, yes, absolutely there's a God, or you wouldn't be here this morning. Maybe somebody dragged you, and you're just skeptical, maybe even cynical. No, I doubt it. There are not many people in here that would say, believe that stuff. I thought there was a potluck. That's next week. You'll have to come back again. But... I would, imagine, I would assume that almost everybody in here believes that there's a God, and we believe that he speaks to us through this book, through, the, through his word. And if that's true, when he says this is the greatest priority of life, we ought to pay attention, right? 
You know, that's what interested the Jews in Jesus' time. They were very much about what's most important in life. I mean, they would discuss hours and hours and hours the nuances of one word and, and, and all the possibilities of, of what God was thinking, saying, and doing. When Jesus came on the scene, he completely and radically turned traditional thinking on its head. Now, I'm not talking about, notice I didn't say biblical thinking. He turned traditional thinking on its head. And the religious leaders of the day hated him. They literally hated him for it. Toward the end of the time, uh, toward the end of Jesus' time on earth, they were constantly trying to trap him in questions. They had a problem because they hated him, but the people loved him. So they realized if, if, if we do anything to upset the people, they could turn on us because they really, really, really love this guy. He seems to be a friend of sinners, they said, for goodness sakes. And, and you know what that mob will be like if, if they turn against us. And so they were tr- constantly trying to trap him publicly so that they could get people in public opinion on their side. And they failed miserably. Every single time, Jesus would answer brilliantly. You know, they would spend hours and hours and hours, and he would say something that seemed so simple, and yet it was obvious to everybody that it was profound. And so, consequently, they had to find another way to get rid of him. That's what we're going to talk about today, one of those times. Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, which is our text, records one of those times, and we're going to look at that encounter between the religious leaders and and Jesus this morning. The question that is asked may seem very simple to us as we look back 2,000 years when they said, what's the greatest commandment? But but, But Jesus' answer, although again, very simple, was and is quite profound. Everybody at the time understood it And hopefully by the time we leave this morning, if not already, we'll understand it as well. We're going to spend today and the next three weeks with this commandment, the great commandment that's found in Matthew 22, 34 to to, to 40, as our foundation to think about what it means to love God and to love others, to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and to love others as we love ourselves. And we're only going to scratch the surface of what it means. It's our custom at Grace Community Church to stand when we read the Scripture. I read and preach from the English Standard Version. Our text this morning is Matthew 22, 34 to 40. So if you would, please stand as we read God's Word. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Oh, Father, if, if all of your word is summed up in these two commands, then they deserve our attention. So, 
as we consider what it means to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Pray that you would create this intense desire in us to know you well enough to love you well. Speak to our hearts through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. Love is a big word, isn't it? What does it mean? It's difficult enough for us to love the people that are the very closest to us. So how are we supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind? If this is the ultimate priority in life, how are we supposed to do that? I mean, is this something that we can put our minds to? And, and, and since, since we're supposed to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind, is this something we just put our minds to and thus will our way to loving God? I mean, is love an emotion? Um, you know, when I first met Allison, I would have certainly told you it is. I, I would have said, oh, yeah, I'm, my emotions are fully engaged. Is it an act of the will? Sometimes we recognize that that's true. Or is it revealed in our actions? Some people say love is action. You know, don't, don't uh, tell me how much you love me. Show me that you love me. Or you say that you love me, but your actions speak so loudly that it drowns out your words. So which is it? Well, it's all of those. But let's ask an even more fundamental and basic question. Is it possible for us to truly love God? Is it even possible on our own to love the Lord? Let's begin to answer that question by contemplating the truth of 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then 1 John 4.19. We love or many of your translations say, we love him because he first loved us. Students, I, I want to say to those of you who are coming here for the first time, those of you, especially those of you who are freshmen, uh, we're so grateful that you decided to, to attend Grace Community Church this morning. If this weren't true of our entire body, they wouldn't be here. The people recognize, all of us recognize that the Lord has put us here for a specific reason, and part of that reason is to minister to the students at, at Campbell. Ultimately, we'll talk about if you decide to, to settle here, we don't want you to just come to church here. We want you to be the church. We want you to be a part of our body and make this an incredibly interactive, productive time while you're here. Get to, to, to serving the Lord and serving your brothers and sisters in Christ in this place. You may or may not choose for Grace Community Church to be your, your home church. But if you don't, I, I want to really encourage you in, in two different ways. Three, actually, since the potluck is next week, you really ought to come back for that. We have some amazing cooks in our... And, and if you would like to bring some food, that would be awesome. Please don't bring ramen noodles. We have that a lot when students are, you know, helping with the potluck. But... Bring something, we would love for you to help. Those of you who are old-timers here, you know we have to cook two to three times as much food for the potluck at the beginning of the year. 
Um, but there are two things I want to encourage you. Um, first, if you, if you choose to worship somewhere else, make attendance at church a priority. And if you don't make it a priority, right at the beginning, it all of a sudden just falls off the radar. Make sure that attendance at church is a priority. And secondly, if you go somewhere else, please go somewhere where they're going to talk a lot more about what God has done for us rather than what we should do for God. Because what we do from God is meaningless apart from what He has done for us. 1 John 4.10 tells us that we have no hope of relating to God apart from His love for us. And that was specifically and spectacularly shown at the cross where Jesus' blood became propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. Now, I mean, if love was a big word, what are we going to do with this one? For starters, the word propitiation literally means appeasement or satisfaction, though it means so much more as we're going to see soon. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to be an appeasement or a satisfaction for our sins. Jesus came to appease God's wrath Against us. Now that may be shocking news to you if you never really thought about it. I mean, why would God be angry with us? It's not like I've killed anybody. You know, I'm certainly better than the person down the street. I'm, I'm, I can already tell I'm better than a lot of the people in my dorm. I mean, if we're talking about God's wrath, that seems to have a more sinister tone than anger. Anger is just kind of can flash, but wrath seems to be a permanent, abiding state of a person's mind against another i mean am i in trouble well the short answer is yes i'm in trouble with god but but there's good news jesus came to mitigate to soften to ease god's wrath against us now and and we need to understand what god's wrath is all about before the love of god makes any sense at all to us when we sinned in the garden, and, and, and make no mistake about this, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it was just, in God's eyes, it was just as if you and I were there with them. And I can assure you, if they hadn't messed up, I would have. You know, people are always saying, why did they have to? No, please, come on. We sinned against God, and when we did, His wrath was activated against us. God is holy without the slightest trace of imperfection. Not the slightest trace. None of us has ever seen imperfection. We've never seen imperfection. Now, some of you girls think that you saw perfection yesterday across the campus. You spotted a guy and you said, perfection. Let me assure you, you did not see perfection yesterday. (laughs) If you don't know that yet, you will find it out soon enough. You'll spend six months trying to meet that guy and then two years trying to get rid of him. But um, God, on the other hand, is perfect. He cannot accept sin into his presence. He cannot 
It's impossible. And it's not because he's mean and it's like, come on, I'm really not that bad. He's holy. We don't know anything about that. And so we can't accept sin in his presence. And since we're all sinners, his wrath is directed not only against sin, but against sinners. Now that's different than most people think about a relationship with God. Most of us think, look, I am born okay with God. And as long as I don't mess it up, I will die being okay with God. I mean, of course, you have to be born in America or a couple of other choice countries like Australia or somewhere in Europe for that to work. Because if you're born in a Muslim country, you don't think like that at all. Or a country where Hindus rule the, rule the roost. But time and time and time again, we read in Scripture... And how in the world so many people miss this is beyond me. Well, look at the religious leaders of the day. They missed it altogether. They missed it. They thought it was about what I can do for God. And so they, they reshaped the law to make it fit what I'm able to do. So they tighten up some rules. They loosen some rules. And just whatever suits me. That's the way I I read the law. And people read Scripture the same way. They can't even think about a God of wrath. But it says it over and over in Scripture that His wrath is formed. It's activated against sin. And it's directly, we're directly in line for God's wrath. And He cannot allow us to stand in His presence in our current condition. Now, we don't like to think about God being wrathful and, and... and perhaps we're making too big, big a deal of it anyway. I mean, the Old Testament only talked about wrath five times. No, wait, wait. That was 585 times. It talked about the wrath of God. In the book of Romans, the, old, the Apostle Paul builds a case for God's gospel, the idea that unless he does something for us, we have no hope of relating to him from the Old Testament. He builds this case from the Old Testament and says it was complete. Salvation is now complete in Jesus. Paul states unequivocally in the first three chapters of Romans that God's wrath is continually, continuously being poured out on mankind because of sin. And that God's ultimate wrath against sin will be poured out on the final day of judgment. We went to Australia this summer, Allison and I did, and the day before we got on the plane to go, Jim Acock and a couple of others and I preached my dad's funeral. And I I thought about this a lot. My dad had dementia for five years. It it, It was an awful, awful disease. And we really lost my dad five years before he ever died. And I've never been so happy for somebody to have gone on to be with the Lord. I, I love my dad deeply. I haven't seen my dad for over five years. Why? Why? Here was a guy who just loved life. He was funny. He was the kind of funny that he didn't care whether you thought he was funny or not. He always had something funny to say, you know, about people would make a remark and and, and he would say something. It was almost like under his breath. Now, if I say something funny, Clever, I want you to know it, even if I have to explain it to you, you know. I mean, I want you to get it. And so I will try to do, you know, I want you to know that I've said something. He didn't care, which makes him even more funny, you know, even funnier. But this last five years was awful. 
And you know what it was? It was part of the wrath of God being revealed against sin. Not his sin specifically, but just the general state of sin in the world when, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. The consequences are from here out. And it's why people's mis- priorities are so horribly misplaced and why Rachel's at home this year. Instead of being in her mostly paid for sophomore year at Auburn University. I think um, it's tough for us when we see Scripture talking about the wrath of God. And even Jesus stated, not, not only did Paul state it, but Jesus said, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. If you don't believe in me, the wrath of God already abides on you. From the very beginning, from the time we're born, the wrath of God is upon us. And I'm sure one of the reasons that we, we have such difficulty accepting that the truth about a righteous God and a God of wrath is being one and the same. Because people say automatically, just like Keisha was talking about in, in the, um, before, she, before they sang the song, she said, well, okay, God is a loving God and God is all-powerful, so what's the problem here? You know, I don't get this. If God, and, and a lot of people never get past that. A lot of people don't say, well, I have to accept that God has a plan for my life. They say, I don't believe it anymore. Because if God were love, he would do this. Now, you're missing the point of our sin. And, and we say, how can God be wrathful and loving at the same time? Because we think of loving as like this, oh, I'll do anything for you. And we think of wrath like this as, I'm angry at you no matter what you do. And it's a capricious kind, flying off the handle. Just, but God... God's wrath is not like that. He's perfect. His wrath is not irrational, irrational and uncontrollable. I put two words together there. He's perfect. His wrath against sin is unavoidable. It's a judicial wrath. Now, what if I were to say to you, hey, look, I could get you a deal on a car, the car of your dreams, sports car, luxury car, whatever it is. Technically, it's illegal. In fact, it's more than technically illegal. This is illegal. But nobody will know. Nobody will ever know. How would you respond to that? I'm sure you would say, who do you think I am? What kind of a person do you think I am? And yet, we got no problem taking a few extra packs of equal at the restaurant. Slipping them in, you know, to the purse. Notice I'm saying purse. That's women that do. No. It, all of us, you know, guys do the same thing. Or, or telling these, just these little white lies that aren't little at all in the eyes of a holy God. We categorize sin. This one's really bad. No. According to God, who is perfect, the slightest little sin, the slightest little mistake, activates his wrath, which it's not like it's just, okay, now I'm angry, now I'm wrathful. It's always there. So when we think about God, we really don't have an adequate word to describe him. Our best attempt is holy, which literally means other. God is other than we are. And 
And it's impossible for a perfect and holy God not of the universe not to pour out his wrath on sin. And that means, unfortunately, on sinners. But Jesus absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. That's what propitiation is talking about. He drank the full cup of God's wrath that was squarely directed toward us. And the... The propitiation of our sins, the removal of our sins before the Lord could only be accomplished by one, by the blood of one who is perfect and holy. Now, Jesus understood what this cup of God's wrath, the Old Testament talks about the cup of God's wrath being poured out on the nations who sin and do evil against him. And that's what he was trying to avoid in the garden when he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He was looking at the cup of God's wrath, which was against all of our sins. And he'd never sinned. And he said, is there any other way? And the father said, no. And Jesus said, okay. Then your will be done. So when he went to the cross, God's fury, his wrath was poured out on him. And and, and the father turned his back on the son. Now, Doesn't it seem silly to think that the cross of Christ was merely an example for us to follow? Jesus was merely an example for us to follow. When you think about all that Scripture teaches about this truth, about what our sin did to Jesus, to the point that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because my sin was upon him, because your sin was upon him, and the wrath of God was being poured out on him. And this word propitiation means that the wrath of God was exhausted on Jesus. And when we recognize our sin for what it is and repent by saying, Lord, please forgive me for my sin and forgive me for trying to get to you any other way than through Jesus And we believe in him. In essence, we are hiding behind him. Just like a little child comes and hides behind his dad when he senses danger. Our only hope of avoiding God's wrath is to be behind Jesus. Who stepped in the way of the wrath that was being poured out on us. I receive eternal life. When I acknowledge my sinful condition, when I trust Jesus and I hide behind him. In other words, my relationship with God is not based on what I do for him. But what God through Jesus has done for me. So may I ask you, what, on what are you basing your relationship with God? I, I cannot believe that none of you that there are any of you who, who are here this morning and you don't think about a relationship with God. What are you basing that on? Is it what you've done for him? Sadly, it's, it, not only is it not enough, it's, it, it's ludicrous, really, to think that we can ever be good enough. Are you basing it on that or are you basing it on what the Lord has done for you? Are you hiding in Jesus? If so, then you are capable of loving God in a way that is pleasing to Him. And that's a good thing since the ultimate priority in life, Jesus said, is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. You know, um, the Pharisees 
The Sadducees were concentrating on the law and how to make it work for them. They had missed, though, the heart of the law. That you're to love the Lord. It's not about rules and regulations. Although once we are related to God, he leads us in the way we ought to live. When Jesus told the Pharisees that the greatest commandment in Scripture was to love God with all of one's focus and energy, he was quoting an Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. In fact, that we just read last week in context of parenting. But we're going to look at this passage again and think about it maybe in in a fuller way than we did last week. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then he goes on to say you need to teach your children every which way possible. Waking up, rising, going to bed, coming and going, all the time be thinking about the Lord's word in verse 9 you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates one of the things that jumps out right away is the connection between loving God and loving his word these words shall be on your heart and you're to teach your children to love my word as much as you do now thinking about the Bible all day every day might not sound very exciting to you but perhaps you're thinking about it in the wrong way we often say things that are quite helpful I'm not saying that I'm saying this is a good thing when we say things like look it's not about religion it's about a relationship and and then to go on to say it's not about what I do for the Lord it's about what the Lord through Jesus has already done for me if I truly believe that my only hope of salvation is in Jesus and if I fully understand the consequences of not being saved there's no way that I'm not going to be incredibly grateful for what he's done for me and I'm not just going to think about what God has done for me on Sunday mornings it should be in fact my ultimate priority in life to love God with everything in me now I I tell you what let me just stop right here and say what we were talking about a while ago was really intense some of you know that You've known that and you've heard it over and over again. Some of you are maybe thinking about it for the first time that, wow, I didn't really understand what Jesus did for me on the cross. And we've sort of made a shift and I promise you this is, the, this is a, a much shorter part of the message. So I want you to refocus. Do whatever you have to do. For just a minute and we're going to talk a little bit about loving God, what it means because he has loved us with all of his heart. To the point that he sent his son to die for us. Now what does it mean that I'm to love him? Um, God's word is alive. God's word is alive. This book is alive to those who were alive in Jesus. Jesus told us in John 5.39 to study the scripture is to find him. That if we really study this with an open heart, we're going to see Jesus in this book. And then Romans 10.17 links the word with faith. Maybe you've heard someone say, to know him is to love him, or to know her is to love her. Well, to know the Lord through Scripture is to love him. There's a reason that God connects my commitment to Scripture with loving him. Whatever I'm thinking about the most is what's going to direct and, and, and focus my life, control my actions. It's just that way. It's that way for me. It's that way for you. It's that way for my grandchildren. I have six grandchildren and two more on the way. 
you um, may know, those of you who know a little bit about our family, you know that Aaliyah is the one who is closest to us. Aaliyah is two years old, and this past week, it was a a great illustration of how what we're thinking about controls our actions. We were at my stepmother's um, uh, having dinner, and unfortunately, there was a plate of brownies that was just her right size to investigate you know it was on kind of a low table and she was walking around probably wouldn't even notice them except that I was doing my grandfatherly duty and said hey hey Aaliyah come here let me give you some of this browning well once she had a taste of that browning that was all that was on her mind and she kept you know she kept picking at it picking at it her folks said okay that's enough one more bite and that's it so she had that bite and she was not convinced that that was all she should have. So she kept eating, and finally it was the appropriate administration of discipline that refocused her thinking. And then she was, you know, thinking about something else after that. But until that time, that's all she was focused on. So what is it that's affecting your patterns? Your thought patterns. I can promise you that what you read, the music you listen to, the movies you watch, what you see on your computer... The, the, the friends that you spend your time with and the conversations you have, all of those things are going to, to, to begin to dominate your thinking, which will, in effect, which will in turn affect your actions. It's inevitable. As Rachel found out, the hard way her mind was everywhere but in class. It was about priorities with her, but it always is. About priorities with all of us. So the call for us today and every day is to love God. How? I can tell you that it's, it's far more about better believing than it is better behavior. First, we must remember that we cannot love God unless he draws us to himself. It was so appropriate that on this day when David knew what the text was, he knew that we would be talking about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, that all the songs were about God's love for us. Because that's where our love for God is rooted and grounded. In fact, love apart from his love for us is only self-serving. You've seen self-serving love before, haven't you? With people. I love you. As long as you'll do what I tell you to do. I love you. As long as you meet my needs. I love you. As long as you fit in my lifestyle. Whatever it is. We've seen that self-serving love. And our love for God apart from his love for us is just that way. When his love doesn't meet our standards, then hey, we don't have anything to do with him anymore. But love that is rooted in Jesus sustains us even when life makes no sense at all. Our relationship with him is entirely based on his love for us, shown when he sent Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice and propitiation for our sins. And we begin to understand God's love and grace for us when we seek him in his word. And our faith is increased when we encounter Jesus in Scripture. I'm going to say something that is going to probably sound very strange to you. By no means was this the way it was earlier in my life, in my walk with Jesus. But when I'm reading Scripture sometimes, I can almost feel my behavior changing. 
I know that, that that sounds really silly, but let me explain. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with my commitment. I used to think I'd read it, obey it, and everything would be fine. If you do this, this, and this, this will happen. And, and that's reinforced all of life. I mean, my goodness, it's what's Rachel's suffering those consequences because she did this and this, and now the consequences. And so we think if we do this, this will always occur. How many people, when they're bitter with God, say, haven't I done this for you? Haven't I done that? Why are you doing this to me? I've, I used to think if I would follow certain patterns and, 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 and list, if I would check off certain lists, then God was obligated to do such and such. But I have failed enough to recognize that's not true. And I got no hope of changing my life. But God's word is alive. It's alive to me. And the Holy Spirit is the one who changes me. And the word and the spirit are inseparable. When I read scripture, my heart yearns to be the person that God has called me to be. And that only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when I read it, I'm thinking, yes, that's what I want. And yes, that's what God has said he will do for me. I've I've blown it enough. I'm not going to do it, but he does it for me. If Scripture reveals God's will and his love for us, it causes us to grow in our love for him, just like a love letter from your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiancé, or your spouse will cause the love in your heart for him or her to grow. The challenge for all of us is to read God's love letter to us more often. So I'm going to close with this challenge to you. Hear what the Lord says to you. And if you want to hear what God says to you, you have to be in the places where he's speaking. You know what you freshmen are not going to hear that you've been hearing for 18 years of your life? Your parents. you're not going to hear that. Now, you will hear that. You'll see them in your mind standing there when you start to do something. But if you're not careful, you'll get away from that and you'll let other voices inform how you should live. If we want to hear God, we have to be where he's speaking. And because of the cross, we can know that he speaks love, not wrath. Wrath is done. If you belong to Jesus, no more wrath ever. And he receives glory because of his love to you. So be in the places where he's speaking. Every day, not just Sunday. God speaks to us first and foremost through his word. Certainly that's what you're going to hear here on Sundays. But also in a Bible study group on campus or off in home groups. And when you interact with your friends and when you relate to the Lord through prayer, especially as your prayers informed by Scripture. I can promise you that if you will receive God's Word by faith and saturate your life with the Word, not the boring kind. Look, if this is life, it's not boring. If this is life to you, it's not boring. And if you will saturate your life with the word, I promise you will begin to fulfill 
the greatest commandment and the greatest priority in your life, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with your mind. Let's pray.